Once again tonight I want us to be considering the book of Colossians. We find this epistle of Paul in the New Testament. And it has a particular message for a particular people who lived at a particular time. But having said this, we know that God's word is profitable all scripture. It's profitable for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness for all ages and for all peoples. And so we have already spoken about this first chapter of the letter to the Colossians. And we saw that four things are really brought before us in the opening verses. You have the greetings that were extended by Paul. As you would tend to do when you write somebody a letter, you will extend greetings to them. That's what Paul did. Uh, He tells them who's writing and then he, in verse 2, says who he's writing to to the saints and to the faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. This is a letter for those people. But you will notice later on in the epistle in chapter 4, he makes it clear that this letter is to be read out to some other churches as well. Verse 16 of chapter 4 says, And when this epistle is read among you, that's the Colossians, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So this is a message that was given to the Colossian church, but it was to be shared also with at least another church. In the greetings that were extended, the preacher is introduced. Paul, mighty preacher of the word of God, is now writing from the prison cell. And he speaks about his authority. He's an apostle, but also his appointment. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In other words, he didn't just decide one day, I'd like to be an apostle. But God called him to this work, set him apart for this work. So you have the preacher. You've mentioned me as well as the partner, Timothy, his brother in Christ, a much younger man, a younger preacher. You could say that Paul was his mentor. Paul was his instructor. But he was a laborer with Paul. And so he addresses the church by saying, Paul, an apostle, and Timotheus, our brother to the saints. As well as the greetings that were extended concerning the preacher and the partner, he mentions the people. Says a number of things about them, that they are fellow believers, they're saints, that they're faithful brothers, they're true and steadfast members of the Christian brotherhood. They are people who are in Christ. And we made the point that physically they were in a city called Colossae. Spiritually, they were in Christ. They had a particular standing, you see, before God in Christ. And this is shared by all believers. We are, if we're saved, in Christ, as opposed to being out of Christ or being without Christ. And then he mentions the provisions. He prays for these things for them. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wishes this for them, that they might know God's grace in their lives, that they might have his peace extended to their lives. This is grace that continues to be poured out on Christians as they live in this world. Paul desires this for them. That that grace and the peace of God that comes into the heart of the believer would continue to be their portion. So that in every trial and in every difficulty and every tribulation they might continue to have the peace of God in their hearts. 
We're not going to be happy-go-lucky all the time, smiling and shouting praise the Lord all the time because there's things that happen in our lives that are tough to deal with. And yet you can still have, despite all of that, the joy and peace of God in your heart. Because joy and peace don't come from outward things. That's what the world imagines. True joy and true peace comes from our relationship with God in Christ and the peace that He puts into our hearts transcends everything, even the tough things, even the difficulties. Think about it. Christians get sick like other people. Their loved ones get sick like other people. Christians are bereaved. They lose loved ones in death like other people. There are trials that come into our lives. It may be financial. You could lose your job. There could be all manner of different things that happen in your life. But if you've got the peace of God in your heart, it won't matter. You will be able to continue living with joy in your soul, knowing that the Lord is going to work everything for good in your life. And so you have here the greetings that are extended. There's also the gratitude that was expressed. The constancy of it. You'll notice that Paul says in verse 3, praying always for you. He didn't stop praying. He just kept on praying for them. Every time he thought of the Colossians, he thanked God for them and he prayed for them. And you, you see the causes of his gratitude as well. These were people in Colossae who lived in a tough situation, but yet they had a great testimony for the Lord. And he speaks about that. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, and for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, he thanks the Lord for all of those things. He is grateful to God for the hope that they have, the hope of heaven, the prospect of glory when they would leave this earth. And then he talked about the grace that had been experienced. Again in verses 5 and 6, in the second part of verse 5, he refers to the fact that they heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. There's the grace that they had experienced. He talks about the gospel. He mentions at least five things about that wonderful message. It's reliability, because it's the word of the truth of the gospel. It's not lies, it's truth. It's God's truth. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the old gospel. It's the original gospel. It's not some newfangled message like some were starting to propagate at Colossae. This is the message they had heard before, he says in verse 5. That means at the first. And as I pointed out last time in Galatians chapter 1, Paul mentions that there's only one gospel. There's only one true gospel. And any other gospel, if you preach it, you're going to incur the curse of God. The gospel is reliable. But also we notice the revelation of that gospel. Paul says twice, you heard. See, the gospel was preached to them. Somebody preached to them the gospel. How important is that? How shall they hear without a preacher? The gospel is good news, but it has to be proclaimed. It has to be preached. It's not a treasure that's to be hidden in a hole in the ground. It's to be shared that others might come to know it. The revelation of the gospel. 
He mentions the reach of that gospel in all the world. And he means here the Roman world. But we can extrapolate from this that this is a message not just for people in Colossae, but of every nation. This is the gospel that works in every nation. You go to the book of Revelation and you see who goes to heaven in the end. They're from every tongue, every kindred, every tribe, and every nation. All over the world. Because the gospel is for the world. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And therefore Christians ought to have a worldwide missionary vision. We shouldn't just want to see people converted in America. We should want to see people converted in South America and Central America and Asia and Australasia and Europe. And wherever men live and breathe, we should seek to have people hearing the gospel that they might be converted by that message. There's also the reception of the gospel that we could think about. It says here in verse 6 of chapter 1, Ye heard and knew the grace of God in truth. They knew the grace of God. This was not a false profession that they had. But a true work of grace was done in their hearts. It's all too possible for people to say, oh yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I've received the truth. But it's not genuine. It hasn't really been something that they've known in truth. But when Paul refers to these folks, he refers to them as those who have known the grace of God in truth. This message overcame their rebellious hearts. It melted the opposition of their souls to God and to Christ, and they were saved. And finally then, we mentioned the results of the gospel. Fruit. Fruitfulness. He mentions that here in verse 6. The gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you. The gospel works. It changes lives. And this is the acid test. The results that the gospel rightly received produces in righteous and godly and holy living. You see, the gospel truly received will make a difference in the lives of those who receive it. This is very important. Faith without works is dead. Where there is no fruit, there is no root. And when we look at the Colossian church, we can discover that they were fruitful in their lives. It's mentioned here in verse 4, the love that they had to the saints as well as faith in Christ Jesus. See, there's the two sides of this. Your faith in Christ Jesus, that's how they were saved. But the love that you have to all the saints. This is the evidence of true Christianity. That you love God's people. Doesn't mean you always agree with all of God's people. But you love God's people. And I can meet people from the other side of the world. I've never met them in my life before. And the day I meet them and find out that they're Christians, there's a bond already between us. It's like a glue that glues us together. And that glue is Christ. We have a common love for a common Savior. Therefore, we love one another. And of course you see as well in verse 8 of chapter 1, it mentions your love in the Spirit. See verse 4, the love you have to all the saints. Verse 8, 
your love in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means that they've definitely experienced the grace of God in truth because the evidence was there in the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. The first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5 and verse 22 and 23 is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the evidence. You love the Lord and you love those who love the Lord. From there I want us to think this evening about the fourth great point that's made in Colossians chapter 1. And it's the godliness that was exemplified. Paul speaks about an example of true godliness as it pertained to one individual. Colossians 1 verse 7. He's talking about the gospel, the grace of God that they'd, they'd learned about. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is mentioned again in chapter 4 of Colossians. Notice what it says about him in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, in other words, he was from the Colossian area, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And we'll come back to that. Epaphras is briefly mentioned, however, here in chapter 1. And we can view him as an example of godliness in several aspects. And I want to share them with you tonight. In the first place, Epaphras was a fine partner of Paul's. I call him a fine partner because Paul refers to him as our dear fellow servant. Paul loved this man in Christ. He was dear to him. He was a laborer with him in the gospel ministry. A man who could be depended upon. That is why he refers to him in verse 7 as a faithful minister. He was dependable. This is a great quality. And by the way, as we search other parts of the New Testament, that's always a good thing to do. Find out where people are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible and you learn everything about their character that you're supposed to learn by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So there's a little epistle in between Titus and Hebrews, one chapter, is called the Epistle of Paul to Philemon. And Philemon was an individual who was from Colossae. He was in that Colossian church. And we can discover that from our study of the Bible. But let me just mention this. In verse 23 of Philemon, we learn something about Epaphras that is not really mentioned in Colossians. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Also, Epaphras was also a jailbird. He went to prison for the sake of the gospel. And Paul and he, perhaps at the time of the writing of the Colossian epistle, were in prison at the same time. But certainly we learn from this, as he's called his fellow prisoner, that Epaphras was a man who suffered in the cause of the gospel. 
You know, it's good to have faithful, dependable helpers in the work of God. The church needs people like that. Folks who can be depended upon. They're not fair weather friends. They're faithful. They can be depended upon. You can count on them. Epaphras was that type of man. So I refer to him as a fine partner. But I also believe that it's important to underline that he was a faithful preacher. Notice the description in verse 7. Who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Aren't there loads of unfaithful ministers? Men who don't preach the truth. Men who water down the truth. Men who compromise the truth. Men who say they believe certain things and then they find out that there are folks in their congregations who don't like that. Or people in the community who don't like that. And they realize, well, because I'm holding to this, I'm never going to see a lot of these people coming to my church, so therefore I'm going to change. I'm going to make things more palatable. I'll change my message to suit the people. They want a worldly preacher, they want a worldly message, that's what I'll give to them. Instead of having the pulpit, we'll do away with the pulpit. And we'll get a bar stool and we'll sit in the middle of the church and have the people to surround us. And we'll change the music. We'll even change the Bible that we use. And we'll have all manner of entertainments so that we can entertain the goats instead of feeding the sheep. That's what it's, all, that's what it's about. Where are the faithful preachers? There seem to be so few today. Now, I don't have any sort of a complex about myself that I'm the only faithful preacher, and I don't believe that at all. There are many faithful preachers in the world. There are some I've never met. And I know they're serving the Lord. Some of them in really difficult circumstances. But a faithful minister of Christ, what is that? Well, that's what the church needs. You need someone who will tell you the truth. You don't need someone who will tell you what you want to hear. You need someone who will tell you what you need to hear. And when he preaches that message and he points a finger at you, there are one, two, three fingers and a thumb pointing back at him. See, the message that I preach applies to me as it does to you. Here's a man who was a a faithful preacher because he preached the truth of God. He just took the Bible and preached it to the people. The gospel, that's what it's called here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. The word of the truth of the gospel. That's what Epaphras preached. And many of the Colossians apparently had found Christ through that man of God. Through his faithful preaching, they came to know the Savior. We need men like that today. Now there's a place in the New Testament where Paul went further to describe what a faithful minister of Christ is. And I'm quite certain that Epaphras was that type of man because he opposed the false gospels that were coming into Colossae. You will see that Paul deals with this in the first couple of chapters, especially in Colossians. 
the false gospels, the teachings of the Gnostics and others, seeking to subvert the faith of God's people. Epaphras was a faithful man because he warned God's people about these things. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, there are some really interesting verses at the beginning of that chapter about this topic. What constitutes a faithful minister of Christ? And certainly Epaphras fit the bill. The description here was very much applicable to him. Now look at this. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. That means plainly. Without ambiguity. So that you can understand it. He speaks with plain language. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. And the underlining word there in the original language has to do with the word and the thought of apostasy. Apostasy is departure from the truth. If you want a good definition of it, apostasy is departure from God's truth. Some, he says, shall depart from the faith. They're going to abandon the faith. They're going to abandon the gospel. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You could say doctrines of demons. A message that comes from the pit. He goes on to say, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Can you imagine ministers doing that? Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. What does that mean? Well, if you ever have seen an animal being branded, like cattle out west, they'll take a branding iron, they put it in the, in the heat, it comes out red hot, and they put it on the back end of the animal on his haunches. And there's a brand left on the animal, a mark. If you were to take a pin and prick that part of the animal's flesh from that time on, it wouldn't react. You know why? Because... Those nerve endings have been seared by that hot iron. In other words, there's no feeling in the flesh there anymore. And that's what Paul is saying here. There are men who have had their conscience seared, like with a hot iron. In other words, they've got an unfeeling conscience. Their conscience doesn't bother them, because their conscience is seared. What a terrible position to be in. Then he shows the things that they taught. These doctrines of devils. Verse 4, forbidding to marry. The celibacy of the clergy. That's what that is. The celibacy of the clergy. When churches tell their ministers they can't get married. Forbidding to marry. That was something that happened even uh, among the Jews. Paul is teaching this. And commanding to abstain from meats. Giving up certain foods on certain days. Have you heard of Lent? Have you heard of eating no meat on Fridays? That used to be the case years and years ago. A lot of people have sort of changed that. But those that are diehards will still hold to that. Fish on Friday. When I went to school, most people who went to my school in grade school were Protestants. But there was the odd person who might have come from a Catholic background. So we had fish on Friday. We never had meat. That's where this comes from. It's a false doctrine. Meat which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Somebody said to me one time that they were 
they were eating the Genesis chapter 3 diet, which was eating every herb, you know, plants and so forth. I said, well, I'm eating the First Timothy chapter 4 diet because it says every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. Verse 4, if it be received with thanksgiving. So I eat just about everything that there is to eat. There are one or two exceptions. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now here's where we want to come to where the, the real message is. In verse 6 of 1 Timothy 4, here's the faithful minister. If thou put the, the brethren in remembrance of these things. In other words, if you're a minister who tells your people about this stuff. Thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. Whereunto thou hast attained. What's a good minister? A good minister is a man who teaches people about doctrines of devils and false doctrines. Epaphras was such a man. Because there were problems in Colossae with false doctrine and with false teachers bringing that false doctrine. And he was a faithful minister of Christ to them. Something else about him. We notice this in chapter 4 of Colossians and verse 12. He was a fervent prayer warrior. Look again at these words. Colossians 4.12 Epaphras is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He was a prayer warrior. He was an intercessor for God's people. What an example to all Christians. What an example to all the pastors of the church. He's a man of prayer. Now, Paul could have referred to himself as an example of this. Because in Acts chapter 9, when he got converted, and at that time he was called Saul of Tarsus, when he got saved, he went to a man called Ananias, and God spoke to Ananias about Saul, he said more or less, don't be worried about him. I know he was a persecutor of God's people, but he no longer is because, behold, he prayeth. Look at him now, he's praying. Now, of course, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin among the Jews. He would have said his prayers all the time. But now he's not saying his prayers. He's praying. He's really praying. He's talking to God. He's in communion with God. And the Apostle Paul, from that very day onwards, from the day of his conversion, was known as a man of prayer. Behold, he prayeth. That was God's testimony concerning the newly converted Saul. And it could have been said of him in countless occasions in the future in his ministry, as the Apostle of the Gentiles, Behold, he prayeth. He was an outstanding intercessor. And there's a lot of portions in the epistles that I could show you where he assured the churches of his daily remembrance of them at the throne of grace. For example, Romans chapter 1 verse 9. For example, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 16. And as another example, Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. And right here in Colossians chapter 1. He says, praying always. For you, chapter 1, verse 3. You know, it's vitally important, men and women, that we pray for other people. 
that we pray for one another, that we pray for missionaries, that we pray for ministers, that we pray for the work of the Lord. From my home country some years ago, there was a lady called Molly Harvey. She went to Brazil, to the Amazonas region, to Boca do Acre, which is way up in the Amazon where Indians live. She was near a place called Manaus. And as a missionary in Brazil, she lived, like others did, in constant danger of attack from some of the native peoples there, the Indians. There was an occasion when Molly Harvey was wonderfully delivered from death. She testified about it when she came back on furlough to Northern Ireland, how that at this particular occasion she had been in a certain place and could have been killed, but God delivered her. She was told at that time by some folks in Northern Ireland who used to hold a special cottage prayer meeting for her, for her ministry in Brazil, that going by the, whatever the time was in Brazil, at the time that it was in Northern Ireland, those people were gathered praying at that very moment. They were praying for Molly Harvey and for her preservation. That God would keep her from all harm and danger. And she said she realized at that very moment that the reason that she wasn't killed there in Brazil was that God's people at that very moment were praying for her back in Northern Ireland. How important it is to pray. In Alfred Tennyson's book, Idols of the King, King Arthur is seen on his deathbed speaking to a friend and he says to him pray for my soul for more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of how important it is the ministry of intercession do we know anything of that by experience Paul is a great model for ministers and I myself am challenged by his life and ministry Preachers can learn a lot from the way he conducted his ministry. How vital is the prayer life of the man of God? Most people think, well, it's really important that a man can preach. It's more important that he can pray. Because his preaching will be informed by his praying. And if he doesn't pray, he might as well not preach. How vital is the prayer life of God's man? And Paul is speaking about Epaphras here, but he could have easily talked about himself because he prayed for those to whom he preached. And that is so essential. The commentator Charles Bridges said, quote, We shall find, as ministers, we shall find that our most successful hours of employment for our people were not those when we were speaking to them from God, but when we were speaking for them to God. Praying for them. What a challenge there is in that. Epaphras, who is a faithful minister, a fervent prayer warrior. But as well as this, we can say that he was a fond pastor. 
you know, you love the Lord's people, you'll pray for them. And you can see here that Epaphras was so interested in the people in Colossae. He was so fond of them. Chapter 4 refers to it again. Verse 12, we've referenced that he's a servant of Christ. He saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. But look at the next verse. Chapter 4, verse 13. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you. And them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Those were two other churches, Laodicea and Hierapolis. There were other cities along with Colossae. But notice that it says here, he hath a great zeal for you. In other words, he was fond of the Colossian Christians and he desired God's best for their lives. That's what he wanted. And every fond pastor will be the same way. See, here's a man who loved these people so much he preached the gospel to them. Just to rehearse again, chapter 1, verse 8. Who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. But prior to that, it talks about his preaching of the gospel to them. Verse 7, as ye learned of Epaphras. That's where they heard the gospel from. But he also declared to Paul their love in the Spirit. In other words, he's saying here, he was a bearer of good news about the Colossians. He had good things to say about the Colossian Christians. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't have some negative things to tell Paul about what was going on in Colossae. I think he did. Uh, he was talking to Paul about the false teachers that were coming in, the Gnostics and others. They've come in to subvert the people. They're trying to turn them away from the gospel. So he told Paul this, but Paul focused on the positive message that, Epa that Epaphras brought to him about the Colossians. Epaphras said, these people love the Lord. These people really love God. I think it's true to say that some folks don't have anything positive to say about other Christians ever. And seem to enjoy being the bearers of bad news. But I think it's good to hear positive things about the work of God and the people of God. There was a preacher who was a contemporary of Spurgeon in London. Back in the 1900s his name was F.B. Mayer. F.B. Mayer had a very great ministry, but toward the end of his life, he talked about his ministry as a younger man, and he said, you know, if I had my ministry to conduct all over again, if I was to do my preaching all over again, I would major far more on encouragement. I would encourage the Lord's people far more than I did. This is what Moses said about Joshua who was, after all, a young man and who needed help, needed support. In Deuteronomy chapter 3 and in verse number 28, here's what Moses said, But charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. Now I say this as Moses 
this is Moses writing this, but these are the words of God. God is saying this to Moses. Charge Joshua, give him this commission. He's going to follow on and be the leader of Israel when you die. But notice he said this, and encourage him and strengthen him. You know, it's good to encourage one another. Sometimes I feel that if you can't think of something positive to say about the work of the Lord, then maybe you ought to just be quiet. Try to be an encouragement to other believers. People need encouragement. It's hard to be a Christian today. It is. There's a hymn in our book which says, It's not an easy road. We're traveling to heaven. And many are the thorns on the way. But Jesus walks beside me and lightens the journey. The Lord gives us strength for every day. Try to be an encouragement to other believers, even maybe once in a while to the minister as well. Let's encourage one another. How are you doing? How are you doing in your Christian life? What about your devotions? How is that going? Where, Where are you reading right now? Are you enjoying something? Is there some book that you're reading that you're being blessed through? I have a friend who's not from this church, but he texts me on a regular basis and calls me on a regular basis. A few times a month we talk. And he'll ask me, are you reading any good books at the minute? And I happened to be able to tell him the other day about a really good book that I just got about uh, the life of Archibald Alexander at Princeton. Tremendous book. Very encouraging to read it. And he was telling me about some of the stuff that he was reading. And we were encouraging one another. And once in a while he'll say to me, Brother, I'm really glad I called you today because this really encouraged me. Or I'll tell him the same thing. A man called me once, many years ago. I remember, not the year, but I do remember the day. It was a Wednesday. And when he came on the other end of the phone, he said, Pastor, you don't know me. He lived away up 80 miles short of the Arctic Circle. It was way up there in Canada. He said, Pastor, do you ever get discouraged? I said, how did you know? I was not having a good morning. I was not having a good morning. That was one of those quitting days. It was one of those writing out my resignation days. I was not having a good morning. He said, well, let me encourage you. And he told me something that really really encouraged my heart about some ministry of mine that he had heard on the internet that had impacted his life in such a way that it had changed his thinking altogether about his life. And I was walking on clouds after that phone call. What a blessing. What a great thing when God puts encouragers in your life. And we all need that. And it would be good if people could speak about us in the way that Epaphras talked about the Colossians. He declared to Paul their love in the Spirit. He said, you know, Paul, those Colossian people, they really love the Lord. They love His Word. And they love one another. And they love the souls of men. And Paul was encouraged by that. Wouldn't it be good if people could 
say that we have a loving spirit. They, they remark on our loving behavior. Not so that they can think we're great, but so that they can get a better opinion of Christ and what he can do for people's lives. Now let's just bring it down where the rubber meets the road. What would Paul have been told by Epaphras if he had visited our church? What would he be telling Paul about the folks here? We need to pray that God would work in our lives the things that are pleasing in his sight. How vital it is that we serve the Lord with our whole hearts. The Colossian believers had a great privilege to be under the influence of a man like Epaphras. A godly minister. A prayerful minister. A man who preached the truth of God. One thing you can say about Epaphras is that he didn't simply lead the Colossian Christians to Christ and then abandon them. He didn't just say, well now you're Christians, now you're on your own, that's it. All the best, I hope things work out for you. That's not what happened. No, he taught them the word, he sought to establish them in the faith. And you know, it's interesting to see the word here in verse 7 of chapter 1. As ye also learned of Epaphras. You know that word is related in the Greek language to the word disciple? What's Paul saying here? He's saying, Epaphras discipled you. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Be discipled by me. Become my disciple. See, these new believers in Colossae, they were in danger of being turned away from the truth and following false teachers. And Paul is reminding them here that Epaphras, who led them to Christ, also discipled them and taught them the truth. Before the false teachers had appeared, it seems, he taught them. And like the Colossians, we need to beware of any religious leader who doesn't seek to win lost souls, but who devotes himself only to stealing sheep from the flocks of others. But we should also never forget that Christians, new Christians, need to be discipled. You know, when we first come to the Lord, we're like newborn babies. Remember whenever we brought our firstborn home from hospital, my wife's thought was, what do I do with this? This is not somebody else's baby. This is mine. I have to know what to now do. And you learn by doing. You have to care for that baby. Do everything for it. It needs loving care. It needs protection. Until it's able to grow up and care for itself. That's like a new Christian. New Christians need discipling. And if you look at the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28 didn't just stop with saying that people needed to be saved, but he reminded the disciples that they had to teach converts as well. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Teaching them. That's discipling them. It's the same word. And that's what the fellowship of the local church is about. I think there's always a danger of individualistic Christianity. You know the type that's so prevalent since COVID. Where people can ignore the local church. And they think they're going to get all their spiritual food and books and radio and internet and DVDs and the like. Now I'm not saying you can't get spiritual food from those resources. You certainly can. But it's really important that people be discipled. You know the word disciples found more than 260 times in the Gospels in the book of Acts. And the verb that's translated to learn as a disciple is found 25 times in the New Testament. And on that particular day, a disciple wasn't only a person who sat and listened to a teacher. A disciple in that day was someone who actually lived with the teacher and who learned by listening and looking and living. Discipleship was more than just enrolling in a school and attending lectures. It meant total surrender to the teacher. It meant learning by living. It was kind of like an apprenticeship in a way. Discipleship. But having said that, we have to also realize that even ministers and other Christians can get in the way of other believers. You know there are ministers and there are ministries that are trying to get disciples for themselves instead of disciples for Christ. If I'm in the business of trying to get people just for my church rather than get them to Christ, I'm doing the wrong thing. I want people to come to Christ. And then the Lord can lead them as to where they're going to go to serve Him. We're not to make disciples for ourselves, but for Jesus Christ. Paul was... Very adamant about that. You'll notice that he said in one place in Corinthians, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. The problem that Epaphras was having to deal with in Colossae was that there were false teachers who came in who tried to draw away disciples after themselves. And that was something that was warned about, by the way, in Acts chapter 20. Paul himself said, after my departing, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And these are men that are going to draw away disciples after themselves. Not disciples for Christ, but disciples for their particular party. And that's wrong. You know, it's part of human nature, I guess, for people to have the tendency to want to follow men instead of God. But we're not to follow men any further than they follow Christ. Paul himself said, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. He wanted them to follow Christ. And so may that be something that we pray about. That the Lord will give us disciples. That we will be careful to pray for those disciples. And seek to guard and to direct those disciples. To follow after the Lord. I love what it says about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. There in Acts chapter 8, when Philip preached to that man, 
The Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that he saw him no more. And the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He went on with God, even though Philip wasn't there. So may the Lord bless his word to our hearts tonight and help us to think upon that which we've studied.